The recent breach at Global Payments Incorporated, which likely exposed card data on 1.5 million credit and debit accounts, will continue to raise questions until the investigation into the breach is complete. So what answers can the industry expect based on Global's internal forensics investigation, as well as the forensics of law enforcement? Hi, I'm Tracy Kitten with Information Security Media Group. I'm here today with Dave Ostertag, Global Investigations Manager for Verizon's Investigative Response Unit, who explains how forensics in a post-breach environment can offer answers and pinpoint exposure and ongoing risks. Dave, why does the payments industry continue to be plagued by breaches despite efforts to enhance PCI compliance in a post-Heartland world? I think the simple answer is that um, that there's a lot of money involved, that, that these cases, particularly large cases uh, like global payments, involve a large amount of payment cards, payment card data, uh, which subsequently gives criminals access to a lot of money. And there continues to be, as you said, uh, continues to be weaknesses and vulnerabilities in systems that that are exploited by criminals to uh, to access that data and subsequently use it. As long as, as, le- as the, the bad guys can get access to that data, they're going to continue trying to get access. Now, Dave, I know that you cannot specifically talk about the global incident, but in a similar incident, in a similar investigation scenario, what might the investigation look like? In these cases, the investigation is, is a lot more complex than most investigations just because of the environment. Um, as, a, as a normal part of business inside the, the, the payment processing side of the business, just like the banking industry, large processors acquire smaller processors. And, and in doing that, in, in acquiring multiple other businesses, you acquire their networks uh, when you acquire the companies. So what you end up with, just like a bank environment or a financial um, industries environment, uh, you end up with a lot of legacy systems that are connected together, and, and, and that makes it difficult to, to enforce uniform security over the entire environment. Besides all of the different ways that the payment cards are processed, all the different methods and channels that, that the, the authorization requests come through, you have telephone, you have internet-based, you have you know, hard frame relay com- coming in, you have e-commerce businesses, you have businesses at a flea market that use a, a cellular telephone with a card swipe device on it. So you have multiple channels coming in, you have to service them in, in multiple different ways. The data comes in different formats. The data has to be converted into a single format to be transmitted to the payment card industry networks. And you have all of these these disparate um, legacy systems that are patched together and have to communicate to each other and ultimately end up in that in that uniform format. Uh, with all of that together, it makes for a large environment to investigate, to determine what's the most likely place that the data was that was taken, if it was taken, how the bad guy may have come in, what path they took while they were they were inside the network. You may have a, an attack vector, an entry into uh, a payment processor's environment in a completely different network segment, and the bad guys may have spent months uh, exploring and moving around inside the, the, the network from, from one segment to another until they ultimately get to the data. So these are, these are sometimes very complicated and have a lot of systems involved that has to be examined and logs that have to be examined to determine you know, what, what the bad guys did, how they got in, where they got to, how they got the data, and how they got the data out, and as well as you know, is there any, anything else that we have to be concerned about. These are extremely large environments. 
Now, I know based on the complexity that you've just described, this next question is probably going to be difficult to answer because it sounds like it could vary greatly depending on the processor that was breached. But how long could an investigation into a payments breach like this take? It could take quite a while. You know, even if you're lucky, even if you happen to get in and you happen to look at the right logs right away and and one of the first systems that you image and, and you examine has the evidence in there, you still have a very large environment to make sure that, that there's not badness somewhere else inside that, that network. You know, in today's times and the more, more advanced types of, of uh, attacks that we see, uh, a lot of times the bad guys use more than one technique, and sometimes more than one team going in. Sometimes there's more than one hacker going into a network, and they share information about what they're doing. So it's do a complete job to make sure that, that there's no further contamination of the environment or no, no further badness in the environment, even if you get lucky in the best of the situations and, and find evidence of the attack right away and what the bad guy did. You still have to spend a lot of time making sure that that's the only problem inside the network. So sometimes they, these could take months. Very often they take truly months to, um, um, to complete the investigation. And so when it comes to different types of breach investigations, how does this type of investigation, one that involves payments processors, differ from other types of breach investigations? Uh, payment processor investigations differ from others in that in many other investigations that we do, specifically in the payment card industry, there's only one type of data involved. You know, it could be an e-commerce environment where you're only dealing with payment uh, account numbers and, and expiration dates, or it could be, you know, a swipe transaction and, and that data process. Inside a payment processor, typically you have every possible way the payment card data is transmitted, you know, and a lot of times that comes from the payment card brands looking at the fraud transactions and determining from the fraud ta- transactions what type of data may have been compromised. So instead of just just looking at a specific set of account numbers, you have to take a look at the, the types of fraud transactions and from that, the patterns of those fraud transactions determine what's the most logical type of data that was taken. And then when the, the forensic investigations team interviews the, the potentially uh, breached company, you have to ask them where would this information exist in your environment? What's the path of this information in your environment? So it, it differs in that uh, you first have to determine where in the network this type of data might exist. And in some cases, uh, there are the payment card brands determine that there are multiple types of data involved. So in those cases, you know, do you have a common point inside this network where all of this type of, or all these types of data exists? Or are we looking at multiple segments or multiple portions of the network where each individual type of data may have been taken. So they, they, they get complicated at times. So how do the different or disparate pieces of the puzzle, such as merchants, processors, acquirers, affect a forensics investigation into a payments breach? It's, it's just like we talked about with the, with the legacy systems, we have similar problems with you know, merchants, process, or merchants and acquirers and other processors. Typically, in a large processor case like this, there are multiple acquirers. You might have five, six, seven, ten different acquirers that that processor sends data to. You know, they aggregate the, the the transaction information from the variety of merchants that that are their customers, and then send them to the acquirers that that you know, um, are the acquiring bank for those merchants. So you have multiple acquirers. You have lots of merchants, and those merchants could come through in a variety of different channels or nodes into the processor. You know, as we talked about 
in the processing world, big processors acquire little processors. So when they acquire those little processors, they also acquire the merchants that, that come with those, those smaller processors. So you have lots of merchants that come in from a variety of, of, of different directions. And that's important a lot of times in these investigations, trying to pinpoint where the, you know, where to focus your investigation. Information as far as the, the different merchants and acquirers can be, can be vital. You know, if, if the affected accounts all belong to specific merchants or belong to specific acquirers, that may help you isolate within the, the network, you know, where your problem might be. If one acquirer is, is affected and others aren't, or if three acquirers are and seven aren't, there might be unique, you know, um, uh, common points for those acquirers in the system. I might give you an idea where you're going. But all of that information together, it can really be confusing until you can focus in on exactly what is unique to these transactions and accounts that's not unique to the, to, to the rest of the universe of other accounts. So if you really get complicated at times trying to understand what the different flows are, what the commonalities are in, in these investigations. Yeah, that's a good point, Dave, and it, it's a nice uh, segue to my next question, and that was to ask how much can a forensics investigation narrow down the details surrounding a processing or payments chain breach? And it sounds like it really does depend on a number of different scenarios. I guess not every investigation is equal. Exactly. They're, they're all different, um, and it might, you know, the, the key piece of information that might help you focus on and find exactly where the problem is is different in every one of these. So it, it's, it's similar to a homicide investigation. You can't, you can't discount, you can't get tunnel vision in, in one scenario. You have to keep all possibilities open and eliminate, and as you eliminate, you, you start to then begin to focus on where the problem might be. You know, if, if a lot of times in, in, in investigations, you get a lead and you check a lead and, and it proves to be a dead end, you have to go someplace else. Well, in these investigations, you typically get to a point where there are no dead ends. All of a sudden, when you're going down a specific lead or going down a specific scenario, you find that everything you check verifies and verifies and verifies. And as that happens, you get more and more focused on exactly where the problem is. So it, it's, you know, it's taking a large, large data set of information and trying to narrow it down into the smallest data sets as possible to focus on the investigation at the same time as you're trying to eliminate as large portions of the network of possibilities as possible to get to that point where you're focused. So would it be easy to determine, for instance, how data was compromised, whether that be at rest or in motion, and which server or servers were hit? That's very difficult. Um, uh, to, to, it's not really easy to determine where it's at unless you, you, you find specifically what happened. You, you find the specific malware that took the data, um, you're going to know exactly what happened. Uh, you know, if it's a RAM scraper that operates in memory, if it's uh, some type of, of, uh, uh, of packet sniffer that grabs the data, or if it's, it's just simply grabbing a file or a database. Uh, sometimes it's easy. You know, sometimes... Uh, you find all the data that was that was in the fraud account in a specific file. You know that that's a huge tool that obviously that the, the investigators use is is taking what's known bad, what we know that got compromised, and trying to find one location inside a network that might contain just that information. But a lot of times, the forensic investigators will use the account information that was that was used in fraudulent transactions 
used that as a tool to try and find uh, try and find where the data was taken from. In some instances, that fraud data, fraud data that was used, helps us isolate where the data may have come from inside the network. Um, if it's you know if if uh, an account number and an expiration date and a CVV2 or CVC2 is used in, in a transaction, there might be a very small uh, uh, set of places inside the network that where that data might exist. Um, so a lot of times the data itself helps us find where it's at. Sometimes, sometimes um, um, uh, we just get lucky or sometimes you know, it waits for months until we find evidence of exactly what happened that, that we determined uh, how the data actually got compromised. A lot of times, though, we look at the fraud data, too, and that the fraud transactions, the patterns of fraud transactions, help us identify how the data was compromised. Um, it, it, there are certain malwares that, that will sit uh, inactive for a period of time and then open up and, and collect data and then close up for a few more weeks and then open up again or a few days and then open up again. When we look at you know, fraud analysis, and we look at when those cards may have been used, we know the certain malwares act in a certain way. So if we look at those fraud transactions and see a pattern that might match the way that a piece of certain piece of malware works, we might be able to, to, to then understand better where to look, where to focus, and exactly what we would be looking for. There's a lot of, a lot of variables and, and a lot of expertise in a lot of different areas that go into trying to determine how the data was compromised based on, you know, those factors of exactly what data is used in fraud transactions, the patterns that we use, as well as, you know, those things we talked about, about you know, what merchants are involved, what acquirers are involved, things like that to help us identify where, in the, first of all, hopefully where in the network it existed, and then what would work, what type of, of methodology uh, a bad guy would use to access that data. And so are there certain things, Dave, after a breach investigation that we may never know? Sometimes we'll never know. You know, there's circumstantial evidence sometimes of exactly what happened, but maybe not evidence themselves. Um, some things we never know because the anti-forensics were used. You know, it's just like a, a crime scene, a physical crime scene. You know, we talked about a murder investigation. Just like someone would try to clean up a murder scene, you know, the bad guy is going to clean up a, a data breach scene. You know, try to change date stamps and things like that to throw the investigator off. You know, delete data. Sometimes uh, completely uh, re-image hard drives or erase hard drives so that there's no evidence there. So um, sometimes logs don't exist. We don't have the logs to understand the first date to the bad guy got in or the last date that he got in. So in a lot of these cases, there, there typically is data that, that we never know. Uh, a lot of times we will rely on other information to give us that if it doesn't exist. An example is uh, perhaps we don't have the logs showing us the first access date and the last access date that the bad guy got in, but we could look at fraud data to, to give us a pretty good date range based on the legitimate use of, of those accounts at, at the merchants that we've identified. So in like these cases, a lot of times, there is information that we will never know. And before we close, Dave, I wanted to ask about improvements that you see the payments industry making as a result of information that's revealed or shared after a forensics investigation. That's a constant thing. I, I, I know in two weeks I'm going to the PCI Security Council PFI meeting in, in the U.K., where they talk to the forensic investigation teams about you know, what do we find and, and take the information from our from our cases and, 
and, and determine your commonalities or gaps in security that, that then become new requirements in PCI DSS. You know, as one of the people that was involved in, in creating the original PCI DSS, you know, we, we took a look at patterns that we saw over and over again and gaps in security that we saw over and over again and, and used those to improve the requirements um, you know, to help people protect themselves from these. You know, and that still goes on today. You know, vulnerabilities that we see the bad guys use, you know, they, they become new requirements. So we're getting better. We are getting better. We've seen, you know, we've seen a migration. When I first started these investigations, you know, 10 years ago, you know, they were simple smash and grabs, you know, just like a, you know, someone would walk up to a department store and throw a brick through the window and steal a bunch of merchandise and run. You know, the first data cases were, were simple SQL injections against big databases of payment card data. The bad guys would, would grab thousands or hundreds of thousands of, a, of account information, you know, out of that database. You know, through time, we've gotten better. We encrypt that data. It's sitting in the database. We put access control around it, you know, protected uh, uh, that information from being taken in the database. Well, the, the bad guys moved at that point to, to using packet sniffers. You know, it was encrypted while it was at rest. So the bad guys started stealing it in transit with packet sniffers. As, as we get better, the bad guys adapt, and, and we seem to be getting much better. At the same time, there's still a lot of people that don't follow the standards, that don't meet the standards, and, and you know, that's easy pickings. And someone who doesn't follow the requirements and has poor security in their system. Dave, I want to thank you again for your time today. Thank you very much. Again, we've just heard from Dave Ostertag of Verizon. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Tracy Kitten.